0: Night. But this morning we're going to be looking at Lamentations chapter 3. We're going to be continuing and looking at this struggle that the author is in. Multiple days a week, myself and several other guys here in the church, we meet to work out and run. Um, and we start about 4:45 in the morning. And if you don't know 4:45, it's early. And it is dark outside. I don't know What it is, but it is dark, it is gloomy, you don't want to be there. When your alarm clock goes off at four, you just have to do it. It's dark and it's nasty, but there's something that's really cool that happens as we conclude our workout, as we conclude our run. We're tired, we're worn out, but we get this beautiful image. As we're sitting and just fellowshipping and drinking some coffee, we begin to see the sun rise. And you see the you see the orange and you see the red, you see it creeping up over the sky, and you get a beautiful sunrise almost every single morning that we work out. And that sunrise, while it doesn't take away the pain in our physical bodies, it makes getting up that early worth it. And I think what we're going to see in our passage this morning is this author, presumably Jeremiah, is in this dark situation. He doesn't want to be there. He's tired. But as we get to the second half of our passage today, he's going to see the sun beginning to rise. He's going to see that in this darkness, a sun is coming, the new mercies of God are new every single morning, and that it's going to be okay. While it hurts now, something much greater is on its way. So as we look at Lamentations chapter 3, would you pray with me as we get into the text this morning? God, we love you. We just thank you for the opportunity to gather together, to worship you, to praise you, and also to study your word, to see what we can get out of the message. So God, would you work in each of our hearts. Remove me out of the way so that the people hear you and that our lives can be changed because of you and ultimately because of the cross. Because that's where we know our hope is found, our joy is found, and our love is found, is at the foot of the cross. So God, as we look at this Old Testament passage, help us see the cross from a distance. And knowing that it's not that far away, that what you've done for us is relevant, it's important, and it's essential for our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. I want us to see this morning that there are two lessons we can learn from the author. There are two lessons that we can learn from Lamentations chapter 3 verses 1 through 33 that we can apply in our difficult circumstances, that we can apply in our hurting, we can apply in our fear, we can apply when life just doesn't seem fair. When we're in our darkness looking for the sun to rise, what do we do? the first lesson I want us to see is found in verses 1 through 18, and that is to be honest in our hurting. To be honest in our hurting. And this is a difficult thing to do, right? These lessons aren't like if you can find a word in a word search and then everything will just be okay, right? These are difficult lessons for us to apply because life is also difficult, that I wish we had a magic potion, that when we were in difficult circumstances, everything would just be okay. But the reality is that we don't have that, but what we can do is be honest in the midst of this. We've learned the last few weeks that the author here is really struggling with what God is doing. Everything in his world is turned upside down. His people are now in exile. A city is not what it used to be, and he feels like God has gone against him, And in the first 18 verses, it gets very personal for the author. That he's not just talking about the city, he feels like God is against him personally. And we can learn that we have to be honest in our hurting in the same way that he lays out his honesty to God. And he lays out a beautiful picture of what it means to be honest when we're suffering, when we're hurting. In verses 1 through 3, we learn that the author feels like he is under the rod of God's wrath, and it has taken over him with bitterness and with tribulation. He says, He has driven and brought me into the darkness without any light. He's in the darkness right now. He doesn't even have a glimmer of hope. It's not that there's even a light at the end of the tunnel, he can't even see that there's an end to the tunnel. Without any light, surely, against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. Can I tell you about this word, surely? It's this feeling of emotion, right? It's not of confidence. It's like, surely God has done this against me. It's a feeling of emotion that that is how he feels in that moment, so it must be true. It has to be true. If I feel it, it has to be true. Doesn't that sound a lot like our society? My truth is my own truth, and you can't take that away from me. If I feel something, then it has to be real, and it has to be true. We say it all the time, surely this person is against me. Surely God has turned his back against me. Surely God doesn't listen to me anymore. It's a feeling of emotion. And that is where our emotions lead us astray. If I feel it, it must be true. And if we aren't careful, we begin to manipulate the truth of God's word. And we take our own feelings over the word of God. And we have to be careful with that. He says, surely he has turned his hand against me. He's not listening to me anymore. There's no light. There's no hope. And in verse 6, he then portrays the darkness that he's in. He says, he has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. The morning that he's longing for isn't coming. He can't see it. Have you ever been there? You're struggling. You're hurting. You're in fear. You're worrying. And you're like, God, where is the morning? Where is that sunrise that you promised? Can I tell you that it's coming? It's coming. It's not in our timing. And that's what I want. I want it in my timing. I think I got this whole thing figured out, but God says, the sun will rise when the sun will rise. And in verses 10 through 13, we see that the situation with the author is getting even worse. He then portrays God as someone who is attacking him. That the author is now the target of God's wrath the target of God's wrath. He says in verse 10, He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. What does a lion in hiding do? You think it's just hiding for fun, to play hide-and-go-seek? No, it's waiting for its moment to pounce on you. You can see his bitterness towards God, a lion in hiding he bent his bow, verse 12, and set me as a target for his arrows. He drove it into my kidneys. He is hurting right now. His honesty towards God is at an all-time high. He's like, this is how I feel about you, God. What are you going to do about it? And in verse 14, he says, I have become the laughingstock of all people. When we think about being honest with God, we have to remember the context of this passage. As we read the first two chapters and even into this, we have the tendency to think that the author, presumably Jeremiah, is just being really dramatic. Like he just needs to get his act together and stop complaining. right? Like maybe he's a, half, a glass half empty kind of guy. We all know this type of person, right? The person who's always down, the person who can't force themselves to be positive. Maybe he or she is too hard on himself or too hard on others. The author isn't just complaining or unable to find positivity. What's happening to the author right now is real. The devastation that he describes in the last few chapters is real. The sin that his people have committed, that he himself has committed, is real. The pain that he's feeling right now is real. The exile that they're in right now is real. And the same thing is true with us as well. The sin that we have committed is real. The pain that we experience right now is real. The fear of what's coming, of what is next, is real. And how we are honest with God about that matters. Because we so often think, like, I can't bring that to God. Like, that's a silly thing to do. I know I shouldn't worry about tomorrow because God says, don't worry about tomorrow. But I'm still worried about tomorrow. Like, what is tomorrow going to bring but we should be honest with God. We should tell him that we're hurting. So how do we do that? Right? How do we be honest with God? I think it, it starts with expressing how we feel. Expressing our hurt to God, just as the author here is doing. It's okay to say, God, I'm hurting right now. God, I'm confused right now. We're going to learn in our second point that as we say that to God, as we're honest with Him, that we should do that. It's just not okay to stay there. It's not okay to stay in that point of just complaining to God. The reason we're honest with God is to move us towards reconciliation with Him. It's to get us to a point to praise Him. It's not just so that we can have an outlet to complain to. It's so that we can ultimately praise Him in the midst of our darkness. We just can't stay there. We can't stay moaning and groaning to God. It must lead us to some form of praise. In verse 15, we then begin to see how the author is filled with bitterness. He's filled with bitterness, and this is where the honesty with others comes in. So we're honest with God in our hurting. We express our frustrations, our confusions with him, but we also need to be honest with others in our hurting as well. Have you ever heard the statement that honesty is the best policy? Who has heard that? Yeah, a few of you, okay. Honesty is the best policy. That sounds like such a great idea, doesn't it? Nobody would deny that like, yeah, that's a bad idea to be honest. Honesty is the best policy until it's uncomfortable. Honesty is the best policy until it's uncomfortable. How about this? Tell me if you've ever been there. You are sitting across the table from somebody and they smile at you and they've just been eating a salad and there's spinach in their teeth and they have no idea and you're the one who has to be honest with them and tell them, hey, look, you got something in your teeth. You You need to fix that. Maybe you're with a friend and you see that their zipper is down, and they also have no idea. And you have to be honest with them and tell them. It's not very comfortable, is it? Honesty is all fun and games until it makes us uncomfortable to tell them that they don't look okay. Get yourself together. It's all fun and games until it's uncomfortable. Maybe it's that restaurant that tells you, hey, leave a five-star review and we'll give you a reward. Like, do we really want to go to that restaurant? All these reviews are like, this place is awesome. But you get like a free soft drink or a free cookie if you leave the review. Like, it's all fun and games until we have to be uncomfortable about it. But we see, ultimately, that we have to be uncomfortable with it. That once we're uncomfortable with it, we're then able to be honest about it. In verse 15, he says, He has filled me with bitterness. And this is where the lesson of being honest with others really begins to set in on a practical level. We not only have to be honest with God, but we have to be honest with others. See, because bitterness often closes the door to clear and honest communication. He openly expresses his bitterness towards God among his hurting. In the midst of his hurting, he's still honest, but bitterness towards us. When we are bitter, we don't want to be open and honest with people. That's why we're bitter. But we'll see that he was, we'll see that as he was honest, he was vulnerable with God. That then moves him to a place that he never thought he would go. And that's what we have to do when we're honest with individuals. That as the author was hurting, God elevated him even more because of his honesty. The last thing we need as a church, as a whole, and as a world really, is people who hold grudges and bitterness towards others. We have to be honest with each other. Now, as a caveat to that, that doesn't mean we say whatever we want, whenever we want, and our filter is just gone. Because we're just being honest here, right? I can say whatever I want because I'm honest. That's actually called an opinion. <laughs> That's, opinion and honesty are two different things, but we complete that we put them together, don't we? Our own opinion is us being honest towards individuals. That doesn't mean we say everything we want. We have to remember that in the New Testament, Paul gave us the fruit of the Spirit, right? That even in our honesty, even in our hurting, we still show love, joy, peace, patience. You get the rest of the story, right? But it means that we have to do the difficult thing of being honest in times. And it means that there are times that as Christians living in a difficult world, that we have to be the bigger person. That if somebody, is being, if somebody has to be honest, it should be us. That if, a, that if a non-believer has hurt us, we shouldn't expect them to do anything. Because we are the believers. We have the fruit of the Spirit dwelling in us. We have to be the bigger person. And even if there is another believer that you are holding bitterness towards, we still have to be the bigger person and rise up. And the heart of that honesty must be reconciliation. It must be trying to restore that relationship. Whether we have hurt others or others have hurt us, we have to be honest to reconcile that relationship. The point of being honest with God and ultimately with others is not to keep score or to make sure that you're right. The reason we do it is to be honest and to reconcile that relationship back to where God wants it to be. Like I said, it's not an easy thing. It's a difficult thing. But it's worth it. And in verse 18, we learn that the author has gone to a point that he never thought he would go. We learn in verse 18 that all hope is gone. He says, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. I thought he would come by now. I thought he would step in. I thought he would intervene in this situation. And he hasn't. Our first lesson is that we have to be honest with God. We have to be honest with others in the midst of our hurting. It's difficult, it's uncomfortable, but it's worth it in order to be reconciled to God. See, the reality is that we can and we should be honest with God. We can reveal our hurting, we can reveal our fears to the Savior, but we can't stay there. And the author knows that as well because there's a second half of this passage. And we see that in verses 19 through 33 that our second lesson is to lean into the promises of God. To lean into the promises of God. While being honest in our hurting is our first point. Our second lesson is that we lean in to Jesus. See, the darkness consumed him. The darkness was all around him. It was everything he knew. No light at the end of the tunnel. No joy coming. The mercies that we're getting ready to learn about didn't seem like they were new every morning. But something happened with the author. This is one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. The author remembers something that he has forgotten when his world was upside down. What he forgot was God's love. He's trying to do it on his own, and what happens when, what happens when he's honest is that God moves, and that God helps him remember his love towards him, that he hasn't forgotten him, that he hasn't left him, that his joy and his mercies are still new every morning. Verse 20, my soul continually remembers it. In verse 21, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. But so often when we're hurting, we forget God's love. We forget Romans 8, 38 through 39 that says nothing In this whole world, no matter your suffering, no matter your pain, no matter what authorities come after you, whatever it may be, there's nothing on earth that will separate you from the love of God. The hope that was lost in verse 18, the endurance that was gone, the hope in the Lord that has left him is now found in verse 19 through remembering. Through remembering what God has done how often do we need to just sit back in our life, stop trying to figure it out on our own, and rest and remember who God is? One of my favorite things to do is when I go over to my parents' house, I don't do it as much now that I live in the same city as them, but when I would come home for holidays or whatever, I would love to look through old pictures. They have this big tub And there's like 90% pictures of my brother and like 10% of me. I don't know why that is. But uh, anyway, not that I'm bitter about that, right? (laughs) We let go of that. But I love going through the old pictures. And you probably have as well. You flip through the old pictures, you see little baby Matt, and you see like, oh man, he was so cute. And then you wonder, what happened to him? Something happened all those years ago. But what happens as we flip through these pictures. We see these family pictures. We see these vacations, these activities, all these things that we did. And what does it help us do? It helps us remember. Remember the love of our families. Remember the love of our friends. Remember the joys we had. It's a beautiful picture of how we are supposed to remember. And the author gives us this beautiful picture. He says, I remembered what God has done for me. And in the same way that we go back and we look at these family pictures and we smile, and it brings us joy, and it brings us happiness, in the same way we should look back to Jesus in our scripture when we're hurting, and it should bring us joy. Because we remember what Jesus has done, we can have hope. And can I tell you that the reason we have joy, the reason our new mercies, His mercies are new every morning, is not just because there's a God out there. Yes, there is, but what He has done is sent His Son, and that is what gives us hope. That's what gives us joy. Is that we don't just rejoice in who God is, we rejoice in His sacrifice for us on the cross. That as New Testament believers, we have seen Jesus' work in our lives. And because of the cross, we can have salvation in him. We can believe in him. We remember the grace of God. We remember the powerful work of Jesus on the cross for us. In verse 21, we see that he calls back in memory of all that God has done. And all the Scripture that points to His loving character. And all the Old Testament passages coming before that that says God's love is enough. And He remembers it. And He believes it. And He says it's the reason that He has hope. And in verse 22, all these beautiful passages, the steadfast love of the Lord never leaves. The word for loved here is the Hebrew word is called hesed. This is the covenant love of God. So this isn't just a general love. This is the love, the covenant love from the very beginning of the Bible that God has established with his people. This is affirming that the same love that the author is recalling here is the same love that Abraham received as well. That it's the covenant love of God. And because of His covenant love for His people, we see His mercy, we see His faithfulness, we see His hope. Everything stems out of the love of God. And it, will, it is what will take us out of the darkness. We just talked about remembering, and we can see that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, and that His mercies are new every morning because of the cross. And in verse 24 we can say that the Lord is my portion because of Jesus. This whole thing is about Jesus. He's our hope. He's our portion. And because of the cross, we rejoice in that. I'm reminded of Elijah in 1 Kings 17. The Lord was preparing him for a great battle And he kind of stepped over a line, right? He was getting ready to charge King Ahab, and he was getting ready to attack him. And God's like, whoa, 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 it's not your time. I'm going to take you down to the brook Cherith, which it's like this little ledge by a stream, and there's nothing around him. And God says, I'm going to throw you down to the brook Cherith. And by the way, I'm going to have the ravens. They're going to feed you what a bird? The birds are going to bring you water, the birds are going to bring you food every single morning and every single night. If that's not a beautiful picture of what it means to have new mercies every morning, Elijah had to, uh, he had to rely on the ravens. What we know is that God was, when God was done preparing him in that moment, he brought him out of it and you can read the rest of the story in the following chapters, but God used him in a powerful way. But we know that it was the steadfast love of the Lord that both protected him on that little cherith, but it was also his, uh, God's provision for him while he was at his lowest. It was God all along, and it's God with you too. In your hurting, in your waiting, in your broken heart. It's Jesus. But the beautiful thing is that it's also Jesus in your joys. It's not just Jesus in your darkness, it's Jesus in your joys. When Christ really is all we need, we we can say, like in verse 24, that the Lord is my portion. And the best part of this whole thing is that when you have Jesus, you can mean it. You don't just have to say it. Because words are easy to say. It's another thing to actually mean it in our hearts. And when we have Jesus, we really can mean that the Lord is my portion. And we can say that as we talked about. That we can say that the Lord is my portion because of the work of the cross. Because of the gracious gift, we can be filled. And what do we remember? We remember our salvation on the cross. This is what it's all about. It's all about Jesus. It's all about the cross. It's all about the promises that he's made for us. As we continue in our passage, we get to this confusing section in verse 27, and he says that it is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. What in the world does it mean to bear the yoke in his youth, and why should he already do that? The answer is that the young have a certain advantage of time. If they bear the yoke of discipline in their youth, they will be prepared in their later years to deal with whatever comes their way. Because here's why, the yoke is not going away. The difficulties are not going away. We're not all young, but we are all younger than we are going to be. Think about that one for a second. You're as young, Few seconds ago, as you ever will be, that's a terrifying thought. What it means is embracing God's discipline now seems to lighten the load later. There's a correlation here in Jeremiah twenty-seven twelve, where he talks about the yoke is surrendered.